Affordability. It's the number one concern of Canadians. Inflation's running at 5.7% this month, following a 5% jump in March. Gas prices have never been this high, fueled in part by the war in Ukraine. Supply chain disruptions are also having an impact on the cost of everything. The 2022 federal budget was expected to give us a path out of the pandemic and onto the road road to recovery. But does this budget tackle the costs? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Ham. When we talk about affordability, by far the biggest concern is the cost of buying a home. Prices were high before the pandemic, but they rose 20% last year, putting the average home at $816,000. Hardly chump change. Our unpublished.vote question asked you, does the 2022 federal budget address your economic concerns? And overwhelmingly, everybody says no. Uh, no one found positive in this, and they definitely weren't unsure. However, you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or podcast channels, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. And joining us to discuss the 2022 federal budget, Ian Lee, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, and Philip Cross is a Senior Fellow at the McDonald Law. Institute. And I want to thank you both for joining me. Uh, We'll start off with you, Ian. Uh, Do you consider this a big spending budget? I certainly do. This budget is still stimulating the economy and there's no need for it. I mean, all the jobs have been recovered uh, that were lost from uh, the pandemic. In fact, we've created more jobs than pre-pandemic. GDP is is growing much more rapidly. We're running up against full capacity per the Bank of Canada's most recent monetary policy report. And yet we're still pouring both fiscal stimulus in with the deficit into the economy, as well as the monetary policy uh, stimulus, because as the governor just said three days ago, the rate is still very substantially below the so-called neutral rate. And they did not address, I do not believe, housing affordability. Uh, in this country. Yeah, well, we're going to get to housing affordability in a little bit. Now, Philip, you feel the government's intervention in the labor markets increased prices. How How is that? Well, it's, it's just, it's paid people to stay home massively over the last couple of years. Uh, and it, we, it's also paid people not to stick with their employer. There were a lot of schemes in Europe, for example, they were faced with the exact same problem in the pandemic as we were. They sent their aid through the employer, and that kept the employee-employer relationship alive during the pandemic. We sent the checks directly from government to people, and in a lot of cases, in a lot of industries where there have been extensive shutdowns, you know, a lot of personal contact service industries, you know, hotels and accommodation, airlines, all that kind of thing, uh, these industries are now facing shortages, even though they're still operating well below full capacity. So, uh that's that's the reason I say that there's uh, they've created problems in the labor market of their own doing. In, in that that case, if you think back to April 2020 and they started putting out the money, you think the best way would have would have been to put it in the hands of the employer, and then that keeps the relationship together. Yes, that's exactly what's happened in Europe. Uh, Europe doesn't have in both uh, Canada and the United States. We sent the checks directly from government to the, to uh, people mm-hmm. in the, the United States. You know, Donald Trump insisted his name actually be on the check just to remind people during an election year where the money was coming from. Uh, we were facing an election too, so uh, maybe that's why these governments chose that. But in any event, Europe is faced with exactly the same pandemic 
but they don't have the simultaneous uh, high unemployment and incipient shortages of labor that we've had. So, you know, there was a lesson there that uh, we didn't do this as well as it, as it could have been done. And the budget looks to put a 3% surtax on banks and insurance companies' earnings over $1 billion. And obviously, Canada's banks got a shining uh, gold star for, for their performance. But is that shooting the goose that lays the golden egg? Well, I do. And full disclosure, I do not consult to any banks, although I am a former commercial banker way back in the day in the 70s and early 80s. I was the mortgage manager, Ottawa main office, when rates hit 20 percent. I also am a strong believer in the Canadian banks. I think they're some of the best bank managed banks in the world. I know they're politically unpopular because they're big and they're powerful and they're successful. But uh, we do not have bank failures in this country, unlike other countries. To your question, these costs are simply going to be passed on. I mean, a bank, like any corporation, is an intermediary. There's no, and I can say this having worked at BMO, there's no hidden secret pots of gold down in the basement in the vault of each bank across Canada. There's no such creature. They have revenues coming in, costs going out called wages, called rent, called taxes, and they've got to cover all their costs. And so they pass on those costs through their interest charged on loans and mortgages. And of course, the the um, the, the so-called administrative fees, which once upon a time when I was in banking were very small as a percentage of revenues. And now the, you know, the, the fees we pay on our bank accounts, on our safety, on all checking accounts and so forth are much, much higher as a percentage of bank revenues. So these taxes imposed by the government targeted to the banks are going to be passed on to all of us. And let's also remember, because the Bank Act prohibits um, one company or a, a small group of companies or people from owning large shares in the bank, no one, no one individual or company can own more than 10% of the shares. That means they're widely distributed and there's all kinds of pension plans. I believe my own university pension plan owns shares in banks. So this is going to hit and penalize the customers of banks and the shareholders, which increasingly are pension funds, which means workers across Canada. Uh, Philip, when we look at this budget, new spending comes in around $31 billion, and that's down dramatically from the previous budget and the expectations for this one. Does it send a positive message to the markets? Well, I think it sends uh, exactly the wrong message. I mean, you can debate about whether in previous budgets, starting in 2015, when the oil crisis almost put the Canadian economy in recession through the pandemic, maybe you know some form of stimulus could be justified in many, if not all, of those years. But now the number one problem in our economy is inflation, and as Ian said, stoking in demand uh, in, an, in a, an economy where inflation is your number one problem is just a recipe for disaster. Uh, you know, there's two things you can do. You can increase supply or you can reduce demand. Increasing supply is going to take time. That takes, it's incredibly difficult to do. There are some measures in the in the government's budget that were introduced to increase supply, but it's going to take years for those to take effect. We have an inflation problem right now. And the only way to fix that in the very short term is to reduce demand. If you're not going to reduce demand through less fiscal stimulus, then you're just going to have higher interest rates. Well, we don't have a lot of fiscal stimulus right now, do we? That's one of the hangovers of the pandemic. You know, we're no longer shocked by $58 billion deficits. If it's not $400 billion, somehow we think it's small. 
this is still a very stimulative budget. If we had put out this budget at any time uh, before 2020, people would be talking about massive fiscal stimulus. Uh, yes, it's it's less stimulative than the 2020 budget, but it's you know you're still running a deficit. You are still putting more dollars into the economy through government spending than you're taking out through taxation. It may not be a tax and spend budget, but it's a spend and borrow budget still. Uh, Ian, we, we've talked about home ownership, and obviously for many Canadians, it's a it's a steep mountain to climb, in particular for for millennials. Now, you know the government's you talked about doubling the first time home buyers credit, tax free savings account to buy your first home. Is is that going to be enough, or it it, it just is it more window dressing? Because as Ian uh, or Philip pointed out, uh, the supply is not going to increase for years. You're right. Um, the what the, and the government announced with those additional savings incentives is is going to actually make the problem worse, um, small, slightly worse, not gigantically worse, but it's going to further stimulate people to buy houses. But there's not enough houses. There's a shortage of houses in our country, and and I've testified. This is a subject near and dear to my heart. I testified before the city of Ottawa, the economic development committee, and another two or three committees separately on this issue. The municipal, I attribute the cause, the, the single largest uh, source of the problem to the municipal levels of governments across Canada, the big cities, who have become very anti-growth in the suburbs. I'm talking GTA, Vancouver, City of Ottawa. And they have deliberately, very deliberately, I testified about the Ottawa Growth Plan, the expansion of the urban boundary, and they have deliberately reduced or at least not expanded adequately the, the, urban, the suburban boundary of the city because of this, um, this, what they pejoratively call suburban sprawl, which is merely the negative pejorative rebranding of what we called forever population growth. We strongly believe in immigration in this country from the very beginning of our country. We're now bringing in 400,000 people a year, but we won't build enough homes. So they have socially engineered a housing shortage. And we know what happens whenever there's a shortage of anything. The price goes up. And, 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 and the irony is they claim they're doing this to save the environment. But And I'll be very curious to hear Philip on this. I've been arguing that you're the, the carbon footprint of any person is a function of their income. The more money you make, the more stuff you buy. The more stuff you buy, the greater your footprint, because according to Natural Resources Canada, 75-80% of the totality of energy in Canada are fossil fuels. And so when you buy stuff or take trips, fly airplanes, you are using, you're increasing your carbon footprint. So people in the urban downtown, where full disclosure I live, are far greater a problem than the people out in the burbs who have been blamed for global warming. And we say, oh, we can't build more houses in the edges of the city because they'll make the global warming worse. Well, the people with the biggest footprint are in the Glebe or in Rockcliffe mm. or in Sandy Hill or in, in, in the Golden Triangle, where the most expensive homes are and where the highest average incomes are. And so there's not even a, a legitimate environmental argument for the restriction of building new homes on the edges of our cities. Uh, what, what do you think, Philip? You want to jump in on that? Well, I think what we've seen in the pandemic is that we, our housing in some sense is now in the wrong place. People wanted to move out. I'm not going to get into the argument of comparing carbon footprints, but I, all I do note is that people want to move to the suburbs. And, you know, if people want to do that with all the money they have, 
partly because of the, the support from governments during the pandemic, they can afford to move out. And, uh, you know, there just aren't enough. It's not just that there aren't enough homes, but there aren't enough homes where people want to live today, which is larger homes out outside of city course. So there's this additional compounding uh, problem on top of the inflows of immigration where housing stock in some sense is now in the wrong place. And that's just compounding the problem of shortages. You know, Ian, we know prices are record highs. Unemployment is at an all-time low. But when it comes to affordability, uh, is part of the problem, or maybe part of the problem is that wages haven't grown along with all the other increases? Um, I'm going to leave that one to Philip because he's the expert. He was uh, 30-odd years uh, at Statistics Canada, and he's a walking encyclopedia on that uh, on that subject. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I let me just come back to housing for a moment and then sure. directly to the wages. You know, if the housing prices were significantly lower, remember, in the last 24 months, they've gone up an average of 50%. Mm-hmm. That's staggering. I mean, yes, I've become enriched by this, especially in the urban core. The most expensive homes are in the urban core in Rosedale and Toronto and Town of Mount Royal and Outremont, Montreal, and so forth. So the people who have benefited the most are, are the most high-income people that live in the most expensive neighborhoods. And it's unnecessary. I don't need my house to be 50% or 30% or 40% higher. And what is done is it's tacitly or unwittingly discriminated against our young people. My own two kids cannot afford to buy a house. And it's discriminated against immigrants. And there's been no reason for that, except for this, what I call this false ideological antipathy to grow, expanding the urban boundary. If you look at any city for 2000 years, I go to London, I go to Paris, you go and look at the historic core, and it was just a tiny fraction of the current city because cities grow in concentric circles. Ottawa, the original core of Ottawa was the market. The Glebe Mm. was the first suburb of Ottawa. Imagine, you think of it not as a suburb, you think of it as the core. In -hmm. other words, cities have always grown by concentric diversification. And now they've suddenly demonized concentric diversification, said you want to put, we want you to densify and live in a tall building in downtown Ottawa, where every study I've seen, most people do not want to live in tall buildings in downtown of a city. There's a few young people, yes, some retired people, their children are left home, but the vast majority of people want to go to the burbs. I bought my first house on the very outer edge of Ottawa near Hunt Club Road in 1976 because that was the least expensive home I could afford in 1976. And people have been doing that forever. And so this has been, the income problem wouldn't be as acute if the housing problem, if housing wasn't so expensive. What do you think, Philip, on the uh, wages not keeping pace? Well, I don't think that's the source of the problem. I mean, if if wages had kept pace with ha- uh, housing, uh, we would be looking at rampant inflation now. If you pushed up labor costs by fifty percent, you know, you'd be looking at completely out of control inflation, and that's not going to do anybody any good. Uh, the real problem, as Ian mentioned, though, isn't that. Uh, incomes haven't risen enough to keep up with demand. It's that supply hasn't kept up with demand. Uh, without increased supply, there was just no way people's incomes were ever going to rise enough. The solution is not to artificially juice people's incomes, it's to increase supply. And to give the federal government some uh, due, you know, a lot of this is beyond their control, as Ian mentioned. This is something that local government control uh, and it's probably the provincial governments are best placed to exercise influence on them. Uh, the best report on this, by the way, is the Ontario government just recently commissioned a uh, 
Task Force on Housing Affordability, they came back with a lot of very sensible uh, recommendations, but all of them focused on increasing supply and reducing red tape and regulations by that municipalities are using to, as Ian said, artificially create a shortage. Now, affordable housing, uh, obviously a little different than the housing uh, issue, but, you know, when we look at the budget, $4 billion over five years to create 100,000 new housing units. Um, and and that will just go, we'll go, we'll go to you on this, Ian, but you brought this up, Philip, that, you know, let, let's face it, that's a provincial jurisdiction, is it not? Uh, quick, I'll be very quick. I mean, I, I looked at the Scotiabank study. Um, Philip, prob- I'm sure, knows him. I don't. He's the former, I think, Associate Deputy Minister of Finance uh, in Ottawa, and he went to Scotiabank, the Deputy uh, Chief Economist. And they did, I thought it was an excellent study. I, I'm saying that as a non-statistician. I read it, and I found it very compelling, showing that we are 1.8 million houses short, homes short in Canada. Now, we can quibble, and I don't mean you and I or, or Philip, but people can argue, no, it's 1.65 or 1.98. I'm not going to get hung up on that. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million shortfall of homes in this country. And 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 I argue that their federal government, I agree with Philip that it's not the federal government's responsibility, but they still have levers. They still have leverage. And one is they transfer the gas tax. They transfer billions and billions annually to municipalities, subsidized housing, you know, affordable housing, um, uh, all kinds of uh, transfers. And they could develop a, a methodology, an announced methodology, where they tie the transfers of these funds to municipalities to a an agreed upon number of new housing approvals, housing starts. I'm not saying that the cities build the houses, but they have to grant the permission to build every last unit. We know that. And so, if the if once it was determined by finance, okay, Ottawa needs this many houses, and we're going to work with the uh, city to decide how many that are needed to solve the problem, not how many they want to create, but how many are needed. And then if they don't deliver that on a yearly basis upon a report card, you subtract or you penalize them uh, to, uh, through the reduction of the transfers. As I do not believe the municipalities, the councils will do this willingly or voluntarily. They're too ideologically opposed to suburban growth. Uh, you know, Philip, in, in terms of affordable housing, uh, does the federal government have it has have its eye on the ball? It has its eye on the ball, but you know, it's had its its eye on this particular ball for a long time. I mean, I can remember uh, uh, Ian and I uh, often go to budget lockups. Uh, we've been going for I've been going for about ten years, and to prepare for this budget, I look back at some of the recent budgets. And it was really quite striking how. In budget after budget, there are two recurring themes. One is housing affordability, and the other is innovation. Uh, We take a kick at this pretty much almost every budget. I have no idea why, if there's any reason to believe that the actions in this budget will make any more difference than the actions in previous budgets. Uh, It very much feels like the government just checking off a box saying, okay, we did something about, we can say we did something about housing and innovation. And the fact that it isn't going to be effective at all, just it doesn't even seem important. It, it seems much more important to just politically to be able to wave your hands and say, well, we did something, we did our best, and there's nothing more to be done with it, and wash your hands of it and walk away. Uh, Ian, a, a lot of the spending and deficit reduction in this budget comes with obviously the rising commodity prices in oil. Is there a possibility of this bubble bursting on that? 
I've been following this just simply because of the, you know, the horrible tragedy in Ukraine and because oil prices are still such, you know, such a critical component. Uh, very quickly on this, and I've looked at the IEA, the International Energy Authority Agency in Paris. I've looked at the government, Natural Resources Canada, forecast of the, uh, the demand and supply of oil and gas out to 2050. The same with the US DOE. Each of these agencies, which are very respected, they're nonpartisan, professional public servants, thousands of economists, energy economists and statisticians are projecting out to 2050, 30 years from now, that oil and gas and coal in some countries, not ours, are still going to be the single most important source of energy, somewhere between 60%, 70% of totality of energy in each of these regions that they're forecasting. In other words, Natural Resources Canada forecasts are contradicting the net zero carbon claims of the politicians. So what? So that's why I'm so interested in the prices of oil and gas. So instead of instead of doing what we're doing, cr- trying to deliberately create shortages of oil and gas, I would rather that they do things like saying, how can we mitigate uh, the use of oil and gas, carbon capture technologies, and that sort of thing, rather than create artificial shortages? Because very quickly, oil and gas is central to our lives. It's existential. We've just gone through a brutal winter. I cannot imagine living and not living and living in my house without heating it, as I've done with natural gas. We're in a second coldest country in the world, according to the World Bank, marginally warmer than Russia, which is the coldest, mean average winter temperature. And we are a huge country, second largest in the world, and we are dependent on transportation, as Harold Innes taught us. That's why we drive cars. We don't drive cars for fun. We drive it because it's really damn cold outside in the wintertime. And so we need that gas. And so the government is, their policies are designed almost to hurt people. Instead of developing the alternatives first, before you start to shut down or restrict the supply of oil and gas. So, I mean, that's what, and this is my concern about these prices is a a government is playing a role, not just Canadian government, but certainly the Canadian government in in reducing the the supply, which is going to, again, drive up prices and create shortages. Uh, Philip, do you feel the government is the the one that's, uh, you know, reducing the supply on fuel that's driving up that price? It's not just what I think, it's what markets think. I mean, it's, what's really striking about this, I've never seen this before, where the oil price has passed $100 a barrel and the Canadian dollar continues to languish at, actually, it's slightly below 80 cents this morning. It, even as prices have soared in oil markets, normally that would be a big boost to our loony. It's very revealing that the international investors just look at Canada and say, well, we just know that this government is not going to allow pipelines to be built to get oil and gas to markets. They're not going to allow more oil sands plants, which is the number one source of our supply. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, I'd say there's, it's really quite striking the disconnect between oil prices and the dollar. I never really believed the dollar was that much of a petrol currency, but it's, it's the, that relationship is now completely broken uh, because I think markets are saying Canada is not going to be able to increase its supply by anywhere near what's needed to replace the loss of Russian oil and gas in the international markets. You know, when we talk about, uh, obviously, oil and gas or other like industries, in particular mining, that uh, might be able to help diversify the economy and, and uh, prop it up a little bit, was much of that dealt with in this budget, Ian? I don't think so. In fact, those two famous bills that were passed just before the last election that uh, produced, from what I'm reading, 
from, yes, people in the mining industry um, and oil and gas is some of the most restrictive environmental practices in the world. I mean, we were already a clean country and extremely, I've traveled all over the world. I've been very lucky and I've taught in many developing countries. And we are, I, I really mean this, we are an incredibly clean country. You know, our air is incredibly clean. I've, I've been to Beijing where you, you think you've been smoking a pack of cigarettes because they burn so much coal there. And, and so we have gone excessively draconian in terms of our standards. We can mine very productively and efficiently and in a clean environmental manner without these standards that are, I think, almost seem to have the backdoor effect of shutting down natural resource extractive industries because of this ideological antipathy to the extractive industry sector. Philip, you know, a lot was made about this budget being uh, the first with the liberal NDP uh, agreement, supply and uh, confidence uh, agreement. And, of course, a lot of people pointing to the uh, the dental program that was announced in this budget. Um, do you think it's going to do the job or is it just going to uh, increase more 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 cost on on the taxpayers? Uh, I don't know why. I mean, you know, there, there obviously is a linkage between the people's usage of dental services and income, uh, but it's it's not a huge difference. Uh, it's not the only variable. So there, there are a lot of people, uh, even today, who can afford to go to the dentist who don't go. So, you know, just uh, providing that subsidy to people, I think it's earning under 90000 to start with. Uh, it'll probably increase, you know, demand for uh, dental services and improve dental health a little bit. Um, but I don't know if it's, uh, uh, you know, what the answer is. I think a lot of people just don't like going to the dentist. There are people like that in my family. Ed, can I just jump in on that? I agree with what Philip said completely, but I was really struck today. And I'm going to quote the NDP Premier of British Columbia, who said today, look, he says, he was using a variation on my argument that if you have a leaking roof, you don't go and replace the kitchen counters with granite. You go and solve the most pressing problem first. We have, and I'm saying this as an older person, so obviously I'm more worried about access to health care because I'm getting older and I'm becoming more vulnerable. We should be focusing on our number one problem, which is what the Premier BC said today. We've got queuing like crazy in our public health care system, we should solve the problems in our public health care system, as the BC NDP Premier said, instead of dealing with these secondary, yes, I understand they're important, but they're secondary, far secondary to the fact of the queuing. And there's people who are literally dying on the queue while waiting for health care treatment. So surely we should be focusing on our number one problem and not our number five or 10 or 15 problem. And some excellent points uh, by our unpublished TV panel. I want to thank our panel for joining us today. Ian Lee, Associate Professor in the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. And Philip Cross is a Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Coming up on the next Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the upcoming Ontario election campaign. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand. <music>